Hi, friends. How are we doing? Well, I'm glad you're here today. Most of you know we've been working through a series we're calling Stuff, Developing a Theology of Money and Possessions. We're examining what we think and how we feel about our money. Last week we heard from my friend Wayne Crace as he walked us through the story of the rich young ruler. I've asked him to come back for this weekend as well. And uh, I know Wayne is no stranger to most of you in our community. He's had years of experience in pastoral ministry and academic ministry. He served as the president of Vanguard University for a number of years. Uh, Since he's retired from the academic world, he has given a lot of his time to pastors like me. And he, I have been on the receiving end of my friend's wisdom year after year after year after year as I lead our community, and I'm thankful for him. I know you're thankful for him, too, because I try to drag him over to this side of the mountain. He lives in Colorado Springs. I try to drag him onto this side of the mountain as much as I possibly can. And so uh, when I asked Wayne to come, I asked him to teach on the subject of stewardship. And as Wayne thought and prayed about this week, God led him in an important direction for this weekend. And it's a message on stewardship that I think each of us needs to hear. So I encourage you to open your hearts to Wayne and particularly listening to the Lord as he comes. Before he does so, let's pray. Father, in this moment, give us ears to hear. May we leave here challenged and changed. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, Capitol. It is a scary privilege to be in this pulpit. It is a privilege because this is a wonderful church, a wonderful congregation. And it's scary because you have such a wonderful pastor who has such a rich and powerful ministry, a real teacher of the word. And uh, these are big shoes to fill up here. But I'm glad to be here. And uh, you are one of my favorite congregations because there's something about this congregation that just kind of wants to pull it out of you. You are so attentive. Stewardship is a, a word that we use most often in connection with money. However, that is not the direction I am headed this morning. So you can take the tight grip off your wallet and uh, (laughs) unclench those fists and uh, relax. But if I was to ask, would you make a, a balance sheet and on one column list your assets and on the other column list your liabilities? And not limit it to just tangible assets and tangible liabilities. I wonder how many would put these two items that I want to talk about this morning on their list. They are both extraordinarily powerful. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have ownership of both of them in unlimited supply. I am speaking about the stewardship of our voice, 
and the stewardship of our vision. How do we see things and what cues do we have in God's word that teach us what a Christ follower should sound like and what they should be seeing? So let's try to unpack some of this. The Gospels often record what Jesus saw. Last Sunday, we were talking about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus with an important question about eternal life. He was not a follower of Jesus, and we do not know. We have no record that he ever became a follower of Jesus. But that did not keep this text from revealing something about the Lord that is very powerful. These are the words that are contained in Mark 10. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, There's not a person here whom Jesus does not love. I have said it before, I'm sure in this pulpit, there is nothing we can do to keep God from loving us. He has chosen to love us, and he loves us because that is his choice, not because we became lovable. There is nothing we can do to keep him from loving us, and nothing we can do to make him love us. He loves us because he chose to love us, even though it was going to cost him his only son to love us. That caused Jesus to have a very different view of people. And as we look at this, we see that the story sometimes surprises us because Jesus looked at people much differently than we do. Sometimes we have an attachment to a particular way of dress or a particular uh, personality. And we have a terrible time getting over that. I remember while I was president at Vanguard, uh, I was entertaining a minister one day for lunch. And we were walking from the administration building in the cafeteria. And a young man was coming toward us. And I, I recognized him. He's one of our students. Uh, and uh, he was wearing a very, very large earring in one ear. And uh, this was about 20 years ago. And it wasn't quite as fashionable then as it is now. And uh, this minister saw this young man, and he saw that earring, and it's like he fixated on that earring. And as soon as the young man had passed, the minister said to me, why do you allow that on this campus? And I thought I knew what he was talking about, but I thought, I'm going to make him say it. (laughs) So I said, "Uh, What are you talking about? That earring. I said, does that offend you? Well, yes, he said. I don't like it. And I said, well, let me tell you something about this young man. Uh, 
he leads the largest student-run prayer group on this campus. And he also leads a very large and very effective student missions team that is going overseas this summer. And he comes to us from a very rough neighborhood, a neighborhood that had uh, a lot of issues about sexual identity. And while he was in high school, he wanted to make it clear what side of the fence he was on. And so he put this earring in as a symbol of where he was on that issue. And he looked at me and he said, you mean it makes a difference which ear they wear in the ring in? I said, oh yes, it really does. Oh, he said. Well, Jesus looked at people and In Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he said. Chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure, how much slack you cut them, that's how much it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the four by four in your own eye? You hypocrite. The Lord never minced words, did he? First take the four by four, the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Ouch. Now, I must admit that most of the time I look at another person's faults and failures through a magnifying glass. But when it comes to looking at my own faults, I turn the binoculars all the way around and I make them as far away and as small as possible. But when Jesus first saw Simon, a fisherman, John chapter 1 records it. Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, the son of John. I know who you are. You shall be called Cephas. Jesus saw who he was, where he was, all the baggage he had, his personality of being a rough fisherman. But he said, I see another person. And you are going to be a different person. In Mark 1, the same incident is recorded with a slightly different detail. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I would underline the next phrase, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is in the overhaul business. He's in the remodeling business. He's in the reshaping and the recreation business. He says, I know what you are. I know what you've done. I know where you're coming from. I know your temperament. 
but you are going to become something else, and it's not a result of just your self-discipline. I'm going to do a work in you. If we had looked at Simon, we would never have suspected gnarly, rough-sawed, rough-edged fisherman. We would never have suspected that he would be selected to preach the inaugural sermon for the entire New Testament church on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus saw a different person there. We will come back to that a little bit later. The person we see, however, is not always the person that Jesus sees. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, perhaps speaking of this dynamic, says if anyone, did you catch that word, anyone? No one is excluded. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And this is from God. This is such an amazing and wonderful hope. I can become a new creation. No longer known by the scars and the marks of my past. My vocabulary can become new. I can see with new and clear vision. My judgmental spirit can become compassionate and patient. My vocabulary can become new, and the old belittling criticisms and comments can become loving words of enablement when I speak to my spouse and to my children. Would you allow me to just do a very little bit of marriage counseling and suggest that if you and your wife are in the spat after spat after spat, that you stop and exercise a time of prayer with each other and ask God to help you to enable each other with kindness and words of enablement instead of sharp criticism. We will take a quicker look at this in just a moment because these words are not the result of just self-discipline. If I'm going to clean up my words, and I'm not just talking about profanity. I'm talking about the belittling. I'm talking about the the, uh, anger that pops out. The word is quite clear. This is not the result of self-discipline or some exercise we go through. Even a church and a group of people, a family can become infected with this. Look to the letter of the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. It says, you say, as a congregation, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He said you are disillusioned. You have a false impression of yourself and sometimes that is what we have of others. 
For 17 years, while I was uh, serving as president of Vanguard University, I had the unique privilege of serving as uh, a chaplain for the Costa Mesa Police Department. It all started one day when I had decided that I was too far removed from the grassroots of humanity in my little ivory tower. And so I went over to the police department and I said, would you be interested in having a chaplain? And the, the chief said to me, this is amazing. He said, we, we just, I just walked out of a captain's meeting and the topic of discussion was that we need a departmental chaplain. <laughs> However, we are not looking for somebody who wants to ride around in a squad car with their collar on backwards. <laughs> we want somebody who will mix it up with the troops, somebody they will respect because they have been watching this person in the trenches. So that means that our chaplain is going to go to the academy. Are you ready to go to the academy? You have to survive. And our chaplain is going to have a year's probation in a squad car. And our chaplain is going to qualify on the firing range with 30 rounds every month. Are you ready for that, Wayne? I said, I'm ready. He said, our chaplain's going to be trained in martial arts. I said, I'm ready. So I, I was in my first year of probation with a training officer one night, and we had just cleared a, a uh, domestic violence call, one of the most dangerous calls a police officer can be asked to take. And... Uh, I was driving that night, and uh, so I got in the car behind the steering wheel, and I reached over to the computer and the, and the radio, and I was ready to tell them we're back in service and we're okay. And John reached over and grabbed my hand, and he said, hold on. Now, it was raining cats and dogs. The washer, windshield wash, wipers were just going back and forth, back and forth. Dark out. And uh, I got to tell you this about John. If, if you had been looking at the 140 officers in that department and you said on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, let's put every one of them somewhere where we think they are most likely to become a believer, 10 being the least... John was an 11. <laughs> and uh, he puts his hand on mine and, and I look over at him and he says, is Jesus Christ coming back? <laughs> I said, saying to myself, where did that come from? <laughs> I said, uh, Yes. When? <laughs> I'm not sure, but soon. I'm not ready. We can fix that. <laughs> How? I want you 
to listen carefully. You have got to repent and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I gave him the Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I said, John, do you admit that you're a sinner and you need Jesus? And he said, yes. I said, let's pray. So there we are in a squad car with the windshield wipers going like crazy and the radio's cracking calls to other units and we're praying and asking God to save this number 11. And we finished and I said, now John, this is not, this is only the beginning. You've taken the first step. You have got to get in the word. What's that? The Bible. Uh, start in Mark's gospel and read Mark's gospel. And, and, and if you've got any questions, we'll talk about it. Two nights later, my phone rings at supper time, and it's John. I got to see you. Hurry up. Come on over to my house right now. I said, we're getting ready to eat. Oh, hurry up with your dinner, and I, I, I got to talk to you. It's urgent. So all through the meal, I'm saying to myself, oh, God, my little lamb has crashed and burned. I wonder what he did. I knew he was an 11. This is not going to turn out good, is it, God? I went over to John's house. He opens the door. He says, come in, come in. I, I, I got to talk to you. I said, what, what, what in the world is going on? Well, he, he said, you know, you told me, in that prayer we prayed, and you told me to read Mark. Well, he said, I haven't been able to sleep at night. He said, I've been laying awake at night, and I have been in my Bible, and I have read the entire New Testament from Matthew through Revolution. I mean, Revelation. (laughs) This Jesus dude is something else, he said. (laughs) And he said, this afternoon... It dawned on me that my mother is not ready for Jesus to come. And so I got in the car and I raced over to her house. She lives about 30 miles away. And he said, I told her what you told me and I explained to her. And we prayed the prayer. And he said, I think she's got saved. He said, is that okay? A couple of weeks later, I was coming out of the armory going on duty and picked up my weapons. And John was going into the armory with his. He was going off duty. And we stopped in the parking lot and he said, uh, Hey, I got to ask you a question. Uh, he said, uh, Sex. I said, Oh, John. <laughs> he had the biggest pornographic collection of anybody you've ever seen he had the foulest mouth and I said John the answer is no not outside of marriage dang he said I I was afraid you were going to say that he said how in the world he said this has been a part of my life I said, God will have to help you and make you a celibate person 
outside of marriage. You can't do it by yourself. No, he said, I can't. I said, let him work on you. John became a spark plug. We had a Bible study that met in my office on Monday mornings at 7 o'clock and so many squad cars were at the campus you'd have thought they were having a riot. (laughs) The chief of police told the officers you can go to the Bible study just be sure to let dispatch know you're there because the president's secretary will take the calls and you can take your calls out of the Bible study. And God was revolutionizing the department. And he started with 11. I would have started with number one. But he says, he where sin abounds, grace can much more abound. The disciples looked at children And they saw them differently than Jesus did. They were a nuisance. They were a bother. They were wasting the Lord's time because they had no political influence. They didn't have a billfold. They couldn't help him with anything. But he saw them as part of the kingdom of God. The disciples saw a little boy with five loaves and two fishes. And they said, what is that in this mob of people? Jesus said, that's a banquet. Jesus taught them a great lesson standing outside Lazarus' tomb. The disciples are there, Lazarus' two sisters, and they said to Jesus, you know, it's too bad. You're a little bit late. If you'd have been here three days ago, we wouldn't be standing at this tomb. You see, their vision had boundaries on what God could do. And sometimes our vision has boundaries. I have prayed some pretty stupid prayers in my life. I have actually told God, if you don't hurry up, this situation is going to be out of control. Can you imagine me telling God that? I imagine Mary and Martha felt that way. If you don't get here soon, he's going to die. And you can't do anything about that. We've got boundaries on what God can do. Jesus said, roll that stone away. And they said, wait, 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 wait a second. He's been in there three days. It's not going to be a very pleasant odor. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, I love the commentators on this point. They say that when Jesus addresses the realm of the dead, he specifically names Lazarus because if he'd have just said, come forth, there'd have been a whole big resurrection. (laughs) Lazarus, come forth. And out of that tomb comes this dead man, alive but wrapped up, in the grave clothes, which were little strips of, of cloth, torn like, uh, like narrow bandages and wrapped around the corpse. Now, th- this is very, very weird. Jesus has brought this corpse out of this tomb 
and he's standing there bound hand and foot and he says to the disciples, take the grave clothes off him. Now, if you can bring somebody out of a tomb, why can't you take them out of the grave clothes? I think there's a very important lesson there. The disciples could not give life, but they could change the old image. And Jesus said, I don't want you ever thinking of Lazarus as a dead person anymore. You take those grave clothes off him. He is alive. And sometimes we look at a John, we look at an 11, and we say to ourselves, oh, I remember him as, and we describe the Lazarus, who was in grave clothes. And Jesus is saying, get rid of the old jackets. I've made a new creature out of that woman. I've made a new man out of that young boy. And don't think of them in their old jacket. I have had an up-close and personal experience with this. Some of you know I have two boys. My wife and I had two boys. I say to people, (laughs) jokingly, we had one of each. They say, what does that mean? I say, we have one who's a surgeon and one who's an alcoholic. How did that happen? Well, Steve has been 35 years an alcoholic until three years ago. Three years ago, he had an encounter with God. But I remember Steve through most of his life as the drunk. He was drunk at his mother's funeral. He was drunk on her deathbed as she laid there. He stood by the casket drunk. But before she died, Barbara told me, she said, honey, You know how long and how hard I've been praying for 30 years for Steve. And God told me he's going to become a man of God. I can die in peace with that promise. She died. She never saw him outside the grave clothes. Steve decided to go to Teen Challenge in Detroit. He had tried and tried and tried and tried to kick the habit, and he couldn't. And uh, so before he got on the airplane, he decided he'd binge up, and this is the last big drink I'm going to have for a while. So he drank. Of course, he got up in the high altitude and thinner air, and he really, really went over the edge. They couldn't get him off the plane under his own steam. This is a guy who was big, six feet three as a teenager, 215 pounds as a fullback, broke his neck playing football, self-medicated, drafted by the Baltimore Orioles as a third baseman, sliding into second base, jammed his shoulder and broke his rotator cup, and that was the end of his sports career. 
miraculously with a broken neck. He, he got his use of his arms and legs back, but he had neck pain day after day after day. And so he started to try to drown all his problems and all his grief and disappointment with booze and drugs. He ended up in ICU in Detroit where Teen Challenge Center was and I intensive care doctor came in and he said, uh, Steve, you're not going to live 24 hours. Your organs have all shut down. You have detox. You, you've uh, poisoned them all with alcohol. If, however, they do come back, he said, it'll be a miracle. I got the word from the hospital, and I was in California, and God spoke to me. He said, don't you go to that hospital. I said, but my son is dying. He said, don't you go to that hospital hospital. This is between him and me. And there's nothing you can do. You've tried for 35 years and there's nothing you can do. I will take care of this. Steve came out of that, got into Teen Challenge. But before he got into Teen Challenge, he was too sick. They couldn't take him. And there was a retired attorney and his wife was a retired RN and they took him into his home and they into their home and they nurtured him back to health and spiritual vitality and he called me one night and he said dad I have surrendered I've given my life to Jesus I'm done with the bottle that was three years ago this coming January. He is a new man. I still have visions of him drunk on the sofa. I still think of him sometimes at the casket drunk. But he calls me every single day. And he says, Dad, I just want you to hear my voice. I want you to hear that it's not slurred. I want you to hear that my thinking is clear. I am not doing drugs. I am not on booze. And he said, I've been at church five mornings this week. And he goes to church every morning to help the homeless at 4 a.m. He's in a men's group on Thursday night. He goes to church Saturday night, Sunday morning. He said, without God, I'd be a dead man. And I thought, God, you are teaching me a great lesson about taking the grave clothes off. He is a new man. How do we view people? Certainly not the way God does. The disciples saw a paralyzed man coming down through a roof. Jesus saw a sinner about to be saved. Let me move on and go quickly to the stewardship of our voice. James has an awful lot to say about this in his little epistle. He starts off in chapter 1 and he says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak, 
slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God does. In verse 26, he says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Chapter 3, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea, are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. Did you hear that? No man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. He's repeating something Jesus said in Luke 6. He said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes, grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good, where? Stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil that has been stored up in his heart. For out of the flow of his heart, the mouth speaks. Now, let me just make a comment or two. We cannot, through a process of self-discipline, change our speech and our vocabulary. It is very clear that what comes out of our mouth is born in the heart. And until the heart is cleansed, the mouth is going to be filthy. Until the hatred comes out of the heart, the vocabulary is going to have hatred in it. Until the anger is cooled in the heart, the anger is going to be in our vocabulary. This is a matter of the stewardship of our heart. And we are trying to treat the symptom rather than the cause. And the cause of a violent vocabulary and a voice that tears and destroys instead of builds and enables is a broken heart. Jesus came to change that. Solomon who wrote the book of Proverbs, had an awful lot to say about this. I will run through it very quickly. Chapter 6, verse 12. A scoundrel and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who plots evil with deceit where? In his heart. He always stirs up dissension. Let me pause. Dissension is a given. Even in the body of Christ. What God hates, he says in verse 16 There are six things the Lord hates. Seven are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that run quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who what? Stirs up dissension among brothers. Dissension is there. 
It's the stirring up that God dislikes. In chapter 10, he tells us what kind of a person does this. He said, hatred stirs up dissension. In chapter 15, he says, a hot-tempered person stirs up dissension. He comes to it again in chapter 16. He says, a perverse man stirs up dissension. In chapter 28, he says, a greedy man stirs up dissension. In chapter 29, an angry man stirs up dissension. No wonder in Psalm 51, after the episode with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, David prays this prayer, create in me, O God, a clean heart. And let the words of my mouth, Psalm 19, and the meditations where of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. I find this to be among the most challenging facets of stewardship because we are so tempted to try to teach, uh, change the symptom and treat the symptom. When the root cause is a heart that is not right with God. There are many illustrations that this combination of stewardship and vision and the voice are paired together in the Gospels. There's the woman that's in the temple courts early in the morning. She's been caught in the act of adultery the night before. Men are standing around wanting to stone her and they come to Jesus and they say, we have a law that she should be stoned. And Jesus said, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. They all evaporate into the woodwork. And Jesus turns to her and he says, where are your accusers? She says, I have none. He said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. He saw in her a righteous person. He saw in those men hypocrites. The Apostle Paul wraps it up in Colossians 4. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What is grace? Grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve. Well, then what is mercy? Mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve. Grace says you can go to heaven. Mercy says you deserve hell, but I'm not going to give it to you. Let us be people of mercy and grace and let that be the stewardship of our voice and our vision. Help us to see clearly what God sees, the potential, the new creation. Help us to say words that are words of praise that come from an overflowing heart of joy and gratitude, filled with grace. Create in us, O God, a clean heart. The words of our mouth 
the meditations of our heart may be acceptable in your sight. May God bless you, and may this word find fertile soil and the seeds bear much, much fruit. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, I bet more than a few of us needed to hear this word, these stories, particularly the story of Steve. God, give us a a vision. Help us see life and love the way you see it. That we see people the way you see them. Give us a voice. Give us words that bring life to the people around us. Especially the important people around us. So often those are the people who are on the receiving end of words that tear them down. Lord, may we be good stewards of our vision and our voice. And we pray also for our friends journeying with us who are new to a journey of faith, who aren't quite sure what they think of you yet. May their eyes be open to see your grace and your mercy. And may our community be a safe place in which they can journey to. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand. Now, as our service ends, we're going to have some folks waiting here at the front, ready to pray for you. If you have a need, I know they would love to, to, to share a little of their faith with you. So make your way up before you go and ask one of them to pray for you. I wish you, you could connect with my friend Wayne, but he's got to catch a plane so he can't stick around. Uh, this weekend he celebrates six years of marriage. And so he's whisking his wife away to a little, uh, a little getaway. And so I'm thankful for that. And I got to tell you, my friend, I'll just say this publicly. I thank you. I thank God for you. 20 years you've invested in our congregation and 20 years you've invested in me. And I give you thanks, my friend. I don't know what I do without you. I can't believe I get to count you a friend. To all of you, my prayer for you is this. May your vision and may your voice come under the influence of King Jesus. In this Christmas season, may you allow God to transform your heart and your mind so you could see what he sees and say what he says. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.